Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about global cancer care with Dr. Kaveh Kushnut. Dr. Kushnut is an associate professor of epidemiology and microbial diseases at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Kaveh, maybe we can start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got really interested in global health. Sure. So, um, I am, as you mentioned, I'm a professor at the Yale School of Public Health, and I, um, let's see, came to the United States as an immigrant and uh, got interested in public health and uh, pursued a master's degree and a PhD degree at Yale and ended up staying here and joined the faculty. And um, I always had sort of this interest in what used to be called international health, and now we are referring to it as global health, and particularly um, health issues in low-middle-income countries where they have limited resources. Um, So that's been a long interest of mine, and um, yeah, that's sort of how I got started. So tell us, you know, when we think about international health or global health, I think that there's a few things there. One is that, you know, oftentimes it's difficult to see beyond the kind of health issues that we have in our own borders. Um, So what was it about global health that really sparked your interest rather than kind of thinking about public health issues that are right here at home? Was it your background uh, coming here as an immigrant or, or was it something else that kind of turned you on to thinking about um, all of these health issues that might be unique or or might actually be more ubiquitous that we can study in a global context. Yeah, um, I would say my interest in global health is very much personal. Um, having been born in Iran and um, left the country in my teenage years, uh, right after the Iranian Revolution and an Iran-Iraq War, and seeing some of that devastation caused by that. I think some of those um, experiences and memories stayed with me, and I, I could try to forget about them, but I came here. Um, so I, I think it is it is very personal for me, frankly. Um, yeah. yeah. And and I think that that's so important because, you know, we see conflict on the news all the time. And um, and oftentimes we think about this uh, as having political ramifications or perhaps even social ramifications, but rarely think about the real human health consequences um, of these conflicts. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, you know, it sort of dawned on me that um, we are. I'm sitting at the Yale at the School of Public Health and we are obsessed with issues of prevention. That's all we think about. How do we prevent bad things from happening in the first place? But when it comes to issues of conflict and their negative health consequences, um, there was not a single course that I could take. Um, There wasn't any research projects that I could get involved with. 
And so I was asking myself, as an epidemiologist, as a public health person, what, um, what do I bring to the table? What is it that I can do about um, these devastating consequences of conflict? Um, and so that, that sort of got me started. And uh, I had an opportunity a few years ago when I had a sabbatical. And I really wanted to sort of dig deep into what's the role of a public health professional in uh, prevention of conflict in the first place or mitigating its negative consequences. And I was fortunate to be able to get connected to colleagues at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon, where um, you know, Lebanon has gone through its own long civil war and it's um, next to Syria where uh, over a million Syrians have been displaced uh, into Lebanon. So um, the School of Public Health uh, at the American University of Beirut, you know, they can't afford not to be thinking about issues of conflict and displacement. So I felt like that was the right place for me to go. And uh, I had uh, the good fortune of being able to connect with a number of faculty there, including faculty who came from Iraq themselves or came from Syria. And now they were uh, in Lebanon at the American University. And I, I learned a lot from them. Tell us more about that experience and, and what you learned in terms of the health consequences, because, you know, I, I don't think that people fully appreciate the public health consequences of conflict uh, that go beyond the fact that, you know, yes, people die in wars, but but people may not really understand the health impact of being a displaced population, being in a refugee camp, and and all of the factors that go into that, which have real health and human consequences. So so tell us more about your experiences in Beirut and, and what you learned. Sure. Uh, I completely agree with you. I think um, when we think of a conflict, we think about people who died directly as a result of uh, war and conflict. But unfortunately, the indirect consequences are uh, far greater and could last long after the conflicts end. Um, and so that was one of the first things I learned. The other thing is, um, you know, I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist. So I, I had a kind of a focus on HIV AIDS, tuberculosis. But when it comes to health issues of refugees and other displaced population, there's a variety of health issues they're dealing with. Uh, it's not just infectious disease. Uh, in fact, a lot of it is chronic conditions. Um, some of them already had these chronic conditions um, before they were displaced. Um, and then some of them developed this uh, while they came to this sort of new country. And... Um, I realized that even though non-communicable diseases and uh, chronic conditions were not my expertise, I needed to learn more about them um, and end up getting involved in issues such as cancer prevention treatment, which frankly I had uh, no background in. I was very much focused on infectious disease, in, in, including HIV AIDS. Um, so yeah, the, the consequences, uh, including mental health issues, which is another huge issue that I've come to appreciate, um, which again lasts uh, sometimes decades after conflict is over. Um, as a public health person, 
we if we are uh, if we care about the health of refugees and other displaced population we can't just focus on infectious diseases we need to have a kind of a broad interest yeah and i i think that that's you know we're beginning to see that more and more uh even when we think about non-displaced um people uh but when we think about global health as a whole so often uh in the past when we were thinking about low to middle income countries a lot of the focus if we think about the millennial goals and um uh, you know the work of of major foundations gates and others uh it's really been on malaria tb hiv kind of the big three and mm-hmm. I, I have to say that that you and and others who have been so deeply involved in infectious disease and and global health have really made an impact in those areas. But we're beginning to find now that the non-communicable diseases and and cancer in particular are really claiming a lot more lives than than those big three. It's, I think it's absolutely true, and uh, the data and statistics prove that. The other thing about um, conflicts, I realize, is that they're often protracted. They can last a long time. When people are displaced, they're not just displaced for a few days or a few weeks or a few months. They're often displaced for years, sometimes decades, which means the kinds of health issues they're dealing with are non-communicable diseases. They have hypertension. They have diabetes. Um, and they have cancer. So these are the health issues of concern to them. And frankly, the humanitarian organizations are often ill-prepared to deal with these sort of long-term chronic conditions. And they are uh, very much focused on sort of coming in and intervening on short-term health issues and leaving, um, whereas the kinds of uh, chronic conditions that these individuals are dealing with require um, sustainable health services. And that's that's one of the major challenges is that these humanitarian organizations kind of develop a parallel system to the health system of the host country. So, for example, in Lebanon, you have uh, local and international uh, humanitarian organizations that um, offer all kinds of health services but often that's in parallel to the Lebanese health system. So the two don't uh, are not well integrated, which um, makes it quite complicated for people who have chronic conditions. So tell us more about that, because I think that you make a really good point about the fact that, you know, when we look at the conflicts that have gone on in the Middle East and that are continuing to go on in the Middle East, I mean, it seems like this is really gone on for for decades and, you know, what, almost half a century, if not more. Um, so, so when we think about people who have, you know, pre-existing conditions or are at risk for conditions that are non-communicable, like cancer, um, and they're in a, a refugee camp, they've been displaced from their home, can you tell us more about how they access health care. I mean, can they uh, go and seek care at, at a Lebanese hospital? Are they limited to uh, what humanitarian and NGOs can offer in terms of health services? I mean, how, how do they get those health services? Yes. Um, there are major barriers for refugees and other displaced populations to access 
uh, cancer prevention and treatment and screening. Um, as I mentioned, humanitarian organizations often don't have cancer uh, prevention and treatment as one of their top priorities. They consider that beyond the scope of their work. Um, so it's often neglected. Um, I mean, the way I sort of learned about this was I just went to one of these um, clinics that was being done by a humanitarian organization in Lebanon, and I happened to uh, meet this wonderful um, breast cancer uh, physician from Syria who had been displaced himself into Lebanon. And because of his interest and passion, he really wanted to do whatever he could um, on for breast cancer screening and prevention treatment. And he managed to um, do some fundraising and begin to do uh, breast cancer screening and mammography. And I heard his story and what he was doing, and I was so moved by um, his passion. And by the way, I, I want to just emphasize that um, in these kinds of humanitarian settings, often there are these unbelievable heroes who step up and do the kind of work that, um, you know, you just, you've never seen before. I mean, this man himself is a displaced individual. He's not legally allowed to work. He could work under the table um, if a sort of a Lebanese physician is willing to kind of sign off on uh, patients, but he was actually seeing quite a few patients, both Syrians and Lebanese. So I um, learned a lot from him, and I asked him how we could potentially support what he was doing. Um, I connected him with my colleagues at the American University of Beirut. I collected him, uh, connected him with colleagues such as yourself and others at Yale just to see what we can do. Um, but this was only one NGO of the many, many in Lebanon that decided to have a focus on breast cancer. And frankly, it was entirely because of this one man who um, saw uh, how this was being uh, neglected and ignored. And uh, he had been screening uh, hundreds at the time I met him, um, hundreds and hundreds of women. And unfortunately, he had been identifying quite a few Syrian women with breast cancer. And many of them uh, were in advanced stages because they had been ignored. No, they had not uh, had access to screening. So um, that's how I kind of got interested in that. And I uh, ended up working with a former Yale student of mine to just begin to understand what's the level of cancer awareness and knowledge uh, and also barriers to seeking medical treatment uh, among Syrian refugees, but also among some of the low-income uh, Lebanese uh, citizens in Lebanon. You know, that's such important work, and, and we're going to pick up on all of that work right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about global cancer care with my guest, Dr. Kaveh Kushnud. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working side-by-side with leading scientists to better understand how complex data can be converted into innovative treatments. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. 
But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Kaveh Kushnuth. We're talking about global cancer care, but more than just global cancer care, really the issue of displaced populations in low to middle income countries. And right before the break, Kaveh, you were telling us a little bit about your experience with Syrian refugees in Lebanon and how this one individual, this healthcare provider who was a displaced uh, person himself, uh, a refugee, um, but had a background in, um, in medicine, started a clinic uh, to really help people with breast cancer um, because these conflicts are long and drawn out. And, you know, whether you are a refugee or not, you're at risk of cancer. Um, but the problem for for displaced populations is really accessing uh, quality health care. Uh, tell us more about the lessons that you learned in terms of barriers for refugees to, to get the care that they needed. Right. Um, so, um, you know, the refugee situation in every country is different. In Lebanon, there are no formal camps. Uh, there are these so-called informal tent settlements. Um, so they're in this very sort of poor hygienic, um, poor sanitation, uh, high-density uh, places all over the country. And um, so it's and it's not easy for them to get to a clinic, all right? So there are kind of, you know, these remote areas often. Um, one of, I, I recall this one story um, told, to me by the Syrian physician about this one woman who um, was diagnosed with breast cancer, uh, kind of early stage, and uh, she managed to go to see UNHCR, which is the United Nations Refugee Agency, and they have an exceptional care committee. And she approached them and basically asked for support so she could, um, you know, get some uh, screening and and. Uh, treatment for her breast cancer surgeon. And unfortunately, what this what this committee does, they kind of look at each case, like a case by case, and they only provide some financial support for late stage uh, disease. So they told her that um, your um, cancer is in the early stage. So unfortunately, you don't qualify for treatment. So just, just uh, keep it, your cancer until it becomes late stage, and then we'll help you. Um, I mean, but right now, when it's potentially curable, we won't. Unfortunately, that's exactly what they said. They said if things get that's bad amazing. in six to nine months. And that was devastating to me. And that is completely against every you know, principle in public health that I've learned about. You would never say that. Somebody who managed to get to you um, and they're in early stages. And as you said, they're treatable. 
you want to intervene immediately. And unfortunately, this woman literally came back six months later and advanced stage. Oh, and no. I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know the full story, but that story kind of stuck with me. And I realized um, the systems in place are frankly um, uh, problematic, <laughs> to say the least. I mean, these exceptional care committees, as I said, they're only for late stage uh, uh, cancer care, uh, and they have very limited funds. They look at every case and they make this very, very tough decision about uh, are they do they qualify for treatment or not. And uh, they've published a couple of papers, and often they approve about fifty percent of the applications for exceptional care. So, um, so that's a huge public health disaster. Um, this lack of prevention programs, screening, etc. Um, so that's kind of got me started. And uh, as I mentioned before, I ended up working with this one student with a very small budget, uh, just a, a fellowship from Yale University, to go and do the first study of its kind to look at um, knowledge, awareness, and um, barriers to accessing cancer care among Syrian refugees and Lebanese citizens in Lebanon. And uh, no study like that had been done before. And, and this one student uh, worked with some of my colleagues at the American University of Beirut and some of the students there and managed to interview over 400 uh, Syrian refugees and over 300 Lebanese citizens uh, who were coming for uh, primary health care um, programs and centers and uh, did this cancer awareness measure, which um, it's a, a tool that has been um, used in Jordan uh, in the past to look at cancer awareness. And uh, the results, um, not surprisingly, were that uh, both the Syrians and particularly the Syrians and compared to Lebanese nationals had very low awareness of um, cancer symptoms, cancer risk factors, and also they've reported a whole host of barriers to getting uh, treatment. And the most important was not having any sort of medical insurance. Uh, Lebanese health system is primarily private. Um, so government doesn't really have a whole lot of, um, you know, government-run hospitals that provide cancer treatment and care. So if you're a displaced person with cancer in Lebanon, uh, there's a whole host of um, kind of barriers for you to get the treatment that you need. Yeah, you know, I, I wonder, Kaveh, just listening to to the stories, you know, you wonder whether the issue is primarily education because even this, this lady who had enough education to, uh -huh. you know, find her cancer early uh, couldn't get it treated. And, and thinking about... The, the gentleman who started a screening clinic, that's great, but he'd be able to find these cancers early. But then when people applied uh, for help to treat their early cancer, um, it would be to no avail. So so how do you intervene? What What is the optimal strategy here? I mean, in most global health work, we always talk about education, right? Because it's cost-effective, you know, providing people education so that they know the symptoms, they can find things earlier, they can, you know, get them treated, you can downstage. 
but it seems to me that uh, in refugee populations, even if you find things early, they tell you to come back when it's late. You're absolutely right. Um, I think the kinds of barriers we are uh, discussing with these populations are more structural, more uh, system-based, institutional level. They're beyond the scope of what individuals can do. And frankly, these individuals um, you know, don't have a lot of income. They usually have a couple hundred dollars that they get from UN agencies per month. They have uh, food insecurity issues, um, poor hygiene, pollution. Um, smoking rates actually are quite high in the population, uh, mostly men. So there are few things they may be able to do on their own, but uh, honestly, most of the changes that are needed are system-level changes. Um, first and foremost, and that's why we ended up writing a short sort of commentary just to bring attention to the issue of cancer care and treatment among displaced populations and refugees because it doesn't seem to appear on the priority list of a lot of the funders for humanitarian work. They don't, um, when they think of refugee health, cancer care, it doesn't immediately um, kind of appear on their list. So um, I feel like we kind of need some high-level um interest uh, in this in this topic. So tell us, Kaveh, you know, tell us some of the interventions that you've been undertaking, because it seems like, for me, anytime it's kind of like a high level thing, right, it's, it's a matter of changing bureaucracies or, or trying to change organizations, that, that's really difficult work, right? Um, so ideally, you would be able to go to the UN health agencies and say, you know, you really ought to put early cancer care or all cancer care into uh, your budget to which they would likely say, well, we only have so much money, and so therefore we're going to treat late stages. But I could go into a whole diatribe about how that's not really um, getting optimal bang for your buck, but we won't go there. But how, yeah. do, you, how do you change these higher-level you know, system institutional processes? Like, how, how do you do that? Tell us a, a little bit about um, have you, what what your thoughts are there and maybe some of the work that you've been trying to do. Yeah. So this summer I'm working with um, another public health student who happens to be Lebanese American. And what he's doing is he's doing sort of a mapping of um, key stakeholders and um, experts in sort of cancer care in Lebanon to really try to get their perspective on what is it that can be done. Um, so that, that has never been done before. Nobody has actually tried to get the kind of a mapping uh, exercise of who all the stakeholders are. Frankly, this is a relatively new topic. It's just not being discussed. So you need to start there. Um, but I've also been doing my best to push for prevention, um, whether it's you know vaccination uh, against HPV for cervical cancer whether it's uh, smoking cessation programs. I mean, there are uh, cancer prevention strategies that can be uh, adapted for use in, among refugees, and I just haven't seen any organizations doing that. And that's sort of the, the direction I'm thinking of going is, what is it that I can do as a public health person? I'm thinking more on the prevention side. 
Yeah, no, I I think certainly in terms of smoking uh, cessation, that would be huge, particularly given the high rates of smoking in these uh, uh, displaced populations. With regards to vaccination, I agree with you. I think that it's a wonderful preventative um, technique, not only for cervical cancer, but now for head and neck and all all kinds of anal cancers, a, a, a whole variety of cancers. But my question is, So let's suppose, you know, you're born in a refugee camp or you're brought there when you're very young. By the time you're nine years old, you're still in the refugee camp and it's time for your vaccinations uh, for HPV. Mm -hmm. Um, Would these institutions uh, that offer uh, vaccinations for HPV or is that not on their radar screen? And if not, how do you how do you change that conversation? Yep. Now that's uh, that's a very important topic as well. And in fact, um, that's another project that I worked on um, last summer with uh, another public health student who happens to be Syrian American. And what she did was um, work with one of the large humanitarian organizations that has a lot of primary care centers and offer vaccination and basically try to understand. Um, what the Syrian women's uh, and understanding of vaccination um, coverage were, whether their children were getting vaccinated, what barriers they faced. And again, this was a first study of its kind. Nobody had actually interviewed Syrian women to understand um, uh, what is going on with the vaccination of their children. And we are in the process of analyzing those data, but um, there seems to be also quite a bit of... um, barriers that they're facing in getting their children vaccinated. I don't remember if there was a particular question about HPV. I think, um, I'm not sure that was even part of their national immunization program. But um, that, the vaccination is another huge issue. Many of the children, as you mentioned, if you're born in another country, some of them are stateless. They don't have... um, any legal documentation from Syria or Lebanon. So some of these children um, are not on anybody's registry, so they kind of fall through the cracks. So vaccination coverage is another huge topic, um, sort of public health topic of priority among displaced populations. Dr. Kaveh Kushnud is an associate professor of epidemiology and microbial diseases at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.